what's happening in the canine industry. For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Glenn. Yes, Pat. I can't help but notice you have a new puppy out there. I do have a new puppy. Have you thought about getting some expert advice on how to raise that puppy? Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it just happens that we do have an expert as part of our sponsor group. Really? Yeah, Dan Croft Canine. Do they run puppy class? They run amazing puppy classes. What What on earth do they do there? They've got whole ranges of foundation for puppy school. So they're running a complete socialization package and they're doing a whole range of different levels for puppies. And that's what they really wanted to emphasize is that they are experts in puppy raising and training. Where are they experts in puppy raising and training? In Toronto, Canada. Whoa. So if you were in Toronto, Canada, yep. and you had a friend, a client, a relative, just anybody who was getting a puppy mm-hmm. and you wanted to set that puppy up for success, yep, you could probably send them to Dancroft, can I? If I was over in Toronto, Canada with my new little Rottweiler puppy, Mando, I would go over, and I'm, I swear this, I would go over and I would do the socialization program with them. Great I idea. love what they're doing. Have you seen this set up online? Oh, amazing. Fantastic. Amazing. They had a tire with a medicine ball with a pit bull doing a drop stay on top of it. My goodness. Amongst a dozen other dogs that were doing all similar things, like on BOSU balls and all sorts of things. My goodness. It was great. Fantastic. Unbelievable. Yeah. Hey, speaking of your puppy, mm-hmm. what's going on with his nutrition? Couldn't go past canine tuticles. Supplemented up. Supplemented up to the help. My goodness. Yeah. So he should have arms like Arnold Schwarzenegger by the time we're finished. Where did you get those canineceuticals from? From Narelle Cook. Narelle Cook. Yeah. How, do you, how do you know her? <laughs> <laughs> Funny that she's got the same last name as me. Yeah. The supplier is very local. Absolutely. Canineceuticals, but Can- legit, it's probably the best supplements available best for Best supplements available, human grade, gone through the absolute rigorous testing program. I mean, Narelle's got stat sheets on it and everything like that on demand, so... People want to know what they're actually putting into their dog's body supplement-wise. They can reach out to her and she's got all the facts and figures before she even put it down as a physical product. She spent years and years researching it before it was actually come to market. So great stuff. Yes, the puppy's definitely on it. All our dogs are on it. And there's a shit ton of people around Australia and New Zealand who are taking caninecuticals and the feedback is astronomical. Amazing. Yep. Do you plan on taking Mando on your motorbike? If I did, you know who I'd have to go to, don't you? You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound boxes. Rowdy Hound dog kennels. Yeah. From Horny George. George Kittridge himself. You'd have to get one of those Rowdy Hound dog kennels to go on the back of your motorbike. How good is his social media? It's the best. Yeah. I love watching the dogs cruise around motorbikes. I think it's one of the coolest things ever. They've got their little doggles on. Yeah. You know, like we talk about living the best life. Well, for people who are motorcyclists, they can do both. I'm serious about thinking about getting one, but then I've got to train a I, – I don't know if having a Rottweiler on the back of a bike is going to be a great <laughs> idea. Your sport but, bike. <laughs> but, well, uh, I think you should do it. Maybe one day when I've got a smaller mid-sized dog, uh, I would get a Rowdy Hound dog kennel and mm. I could travel around. So I could not only enjoy the company of my dog, which hundreds of people seem to be doing across the United States of America, and I could motorcycle at the same time. So Amazing. two things that are very dear to my heart coming together. All right. This ad's going on for a long time. Mm. I need to get out of here and go and train some dogs. Yep. But do you know where I got the equipment that I'm going to use to train those dogs? The goat. The goat. The billy goat's gruff. Ein's a wiener. <laughs> <laughs> the wiener himself. Einswick <laughs> dog quip. Yeah. If you're not buying all your dog training gear from them, yep. I don't know where you're fucking getting it from. Well, if not from Furman, Einswick dog quip, the Ein's a wiener. How the hell does he sell anything being such a grumpy old bastard? He's online now. He's got a website. That's you right. Can, they don't have to deal with him. You correct. can actually buy things <laughs> off the website. You can actually do it now. Yep. Einswickdogquip.com.au yep. or just .com. Probably one of them. I don't it's know. one of them. It just, we'll put it in the out. Yeah, put it, you, yeah. You'll click. You'll find a link. You'll buy some stuff. <laughs> Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. G'day, mate. Yeah. 
<laughs> you know, we used to take it in turns in doing the intro. Yeah. That went out the window probably like 50 episodes in or something like that. Then it started being me. Doesn't matter to me. I'm busy doing the productions. You're, yeah. That's why. And I mean, you do. Yeah, because you're doing the sound and you do the thing and then you nod at me. It's just yeah. kind of how it, the, that's the rhythm we got into. Yeah. To be honest, it's not a ego thing for either one of us. I mean. Oh, it is for me. <laughs> <laughs> I speak first. Doesn't matter to me. I, it, it just matters that we get the show on the air. That's that's what matters. And you do a good job of the intro. Oh, and, thank you, sir. I appreciate and it. The, and the outro. Like you don't fuck it up and you keep tempo and you remember to say all the key points that need to be hit. Most of the time. Most of the time. So in that, I just feel that that's the better way to do it. This is the best way to start the show, so-called jerking. Yeah, it is, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know we've got a topic, but yeah. before we go on to that topic, let's just talk about a sinister little clip that went out mm. that actually has you as part of the voice in it. Yeah. You played it to me. I listened to it and I thought to myself, what a nasty little bit of rhetoric mm. that was cherry picked deliberately to spread hate and misinformation. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. It's just someone's real. I don't even know who the person is. I'm not overly concerned. I don't really, but it's, it's an interesting thing. The people who support it is what is interesting to me. And and like the comments, yeah, that's right. The, yeah. The people who have it within them to be yeah. haters and spread hate and spread more misinformation. Yeah. The thing that I think that we've tried to do somewhat successfully in building culture and trying to develop and raise bars in the industry and so forth, these things lower them and they mm. diminish them and they create more dissent. It's sad that I saw people in the comments or making comments who were opposed to that type of thing yet yeah. still felt the need to make a make a comment or add support or add weight to it. Yeah. Which is, I think if you listen to this podcast, and maybe you do, that's disappointing. We're all about the healing. And it's not to say you and I have never maintained that we're perfect people and we don't make mistakes and we don't say things that enrage people. There have been times where people have messaged me and I know they've messaged you and said, you're spending a little bit of focus time on a certain amount of people, probably unfairly. And there's been times where I've thought about that and I've considered, well, maybe that's true. If that's the message that's coming across, maybe we need to back off on that. Maybe we need to be a little bit more thoughtful about our approach. And both of us have had the right of changing our mind in the past. Mm. But these sort of things, you know, in these other groups, they don't kind of go away. And it reminds me very much of a group of people that were trying to drag Joe Rogan down at one point in time and they cherry picked some things that he was saying mm. and he had to, you know, like he got on there and said, Hey, when you listen to this, it's pretty bad. I agree. When I listen to it, it sounds awful. And it's really been played out of context because people have cherry picked it and made it sound sinister mm. and taken everything entirely out of context. And that's the danger of when people make these little mixes, you know, they find what they want. They create this environment of hatred and misinformation. And it's so it's really an act of evil. Mm. It, it's from evil people with with, well, with, it, in, with intent. Yeah, I don't know. Like it, it's a weird one because it was just a reel and they've got part of my voice. It's from a YouTube video and I'm, the actual context of what I was explaining is how the consequences of using food mm. and whether- Yeah, but it's cherry-picked. It's such a, yeah. it's a, such a small piece well, out, of a, out of a bigger conversation. So on that reel it is, but then on the profile of this person, there's like a, you know, you can do the stories, highlights or whatever. Yep. There's one of those called Red Flags and it's got all the, it's so that reel is obviously made from uh, sections of these things that they've got in there. And in there, they've got most of the whole video, they explain the thing and I'm in it. There's And there's a lot of different trainers in the same thing. Um, and like, I just sort of, when I saw that, like, it's very disappointing. It's kind of, it's annoying. And, you know, really all I was interested in, yeah, cause lots of people have come after me before and, and usually it's, it's very often that they repeating something they've heard or they don't like something that I stand for. And I think that's fine. Like I would never go off kind of half cock like that. But when someone says, oh, you know, he's terrible because he's a balanced trainer, I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's like, you just don't like balanced trainers. Probably had a very bad experience in the past with one, mm. whatever, like that's fine. But to show that you watch the whole video and to have be an issue with that and post it on their own page as a highlight saying like as a red flag person and 
I was like, oh, I don't think I can share any common ground with this person because it's like all I was talking about is like a way to use food. And I was explaining the consequences of doing it in both directions, whether you want to train a dog that's hungry or versus use negative punishment on a dog who then checks out when he doesn't want the food. Like it's pretty innocuous. Which is exactly what the people who are spreading the hate mongering about are doing without actually naming it or putting words to it. That's right. And so I think the issue from my point of view is like, it was just that I was using words they don't like. I think, and that's probably one of the the issues with a lot of the people who are anti the type of training that you or I would do, I think their issue is more with the language that we use rather than what we actually do. Because for the people who understand the, the language, the real terminology, and are trainers who don't want to train the way that we do, I tend to get along with those people really well. And in fact, have great working relationships with them and, you know, can discuss complex ideas with them and bounce things off of them. Because, you know, sometimes I encounter problems that uh, I know how to fix one way, but I've got a client that doesn't want to do that for whatever reason, whatever. And so I want to be able to have conversations with people who have a different Rolodex of skills Mm. to me in different areas. So like, that's not the issue. The people who train in different ways is not the issue. It's the people who don't really understand dog training at all Mm. and then want to sort of say who's right and who's wrong and who's good and who's bad without actually kind of understanding what they're talking about. It's exactly what it is. It's offering your opinion as though you know more or are more important than the people who are experts in that, Mm. right? And I think that's become really commonplace, but it's certainly online and on Instagram and I think TikTok as well, like it's become very prominent. And what we see is a lot of like people who start social media pages because they've got a reactive dog. And the truth is when I look at most of these, that they're causing their activity. It's their lifestyle that causes that reactivity. And you can look at a lot of the pages of people who have, you know, there's so many of them. It's always like the dog's name and, you know, some slogan of choosing a better life or whatever. Right. And when you look at the majority of them, not all of them, because there are some that are really good. And that's the sort of the issue with this kind of thing. But a lot of them are people who are really anti or really pro some kind of training modality. Mm. And it's because they've either had a good or a bad experience with that training modality, right? So like their trainer might be a force-free trainer or, or their trainer might be balanced and then they push that. And there's people online who are who have made things that are anti me and what I do, but there's also people online who are pro and and have had really good experiences and make the same thing. And they're they're all doing the same thing, right? They're all like, it's all comes from the same place. But where I'm going with it is that they don't really know very much about dog training, right? And very often they're showing the lifestyle of their reactive dog and they're saying, I would never do this and this person's bad and don't do this. But through showing the things they're doing with their reactive dog, Most dog trainers, whether they're force-free or balanced or whatever, however they fit into the equation, can look at it and go, oh, you're doing these things. Like Mm. you're creating that. And the other issue that I think I find with a lot of those accounts is, especially the ones that get quite popular, is that if you are the person with the reactive dog and you've got a big following that on you and your journey with the, the reactive dog, it's not in your interest to no longer have a reactive dog. Right. Mm. And I think that there's people, there's plenty of documented cases of people who poison their own children because they like having the the attention that having a sick child brings them. There's plenty of evidence of that. And Mm. if people are willing to do that to their own kid, they're sure as fuck doing that to their dog without a doubt in my mind. The case of like, oh, my reactive special needs dog or whatever. And it's like, it's not actually that at all. It's actually a great dog. Your management in what you think is management of your reactive dog Mm. is perpetuating the problems that you have with your dog. Well said. (laughs) So that's my sort of like, I'm not concerned about like, I'm not even going to say the name of the account because I don't want people going to it. I think that these are very often people who are not well. And I absolutely, it's super important to me that Nobody on on my behalf goes and engages with an unwell person and makes them worse for me. So like, that's why I never, because I have, you know, there's people who would do that because they outrage by seeing that. Mm. And especially people who, you know, through me and others have been helped via the training techniques that I'm talking about in that video would go and defend the position. And I would ask you not to, because it, it's just not going to help. It isn't going to benefit anybody in that situation in any way, shape kind or what form. They want. Yeah. That, it, it that- just creates more traffic. They're kind of like radio shock jocks that they'll just say anything and everything just yeah, to, just to increase to a, engagement. To increase engagement. Yeah. 
All I can say, mate, is it's lucky you and the other, it seems to be men that are on that particularly yeah. cherry-picked process, and it seems to be generating hatred towards men, which, yeah. is, which is also something I think is very disappointing because we're all in this together. Every NDTF group that's ever out there, if you were to interview them and say, who does Glenn raise up more or talk about more? I celebrate the women in this industry much more and give them much more credibility. Even though my male counterparts who are doing excellent, outstanding work out there, and we've talked to many of them, people have said that, you know, like have attacked me before and said, you guys seem to have a bias towards interviewing men over women. That's not true. I actually I actually think that women are doing overall doing a better job. And there's more certainly much more of them. I mean, the percentage is overwhelming about men versus women in the industry. But to see that, that's very it's very woke of this person to go over and do that. And mm. it's, that whole woke movement is largely disappointing because, mate, if you and those other people were witches in Salem, or accused witches in Salem, they would fucking burn you. You'd mm. be you'd be burning in a pile right now based on the hysteria that those people had created. And that's the sort of danger that I want to highlight when these people do these type of things is it's generating hatred. It's inspired to create hatred towards a gender and it's inspired to create hatred towards something that has been focused and highlighted on a very minuscule conversation that had a lot of Great information about how to have a better relationship with your dog overall, mm. including, as we said before, language that they would use differently in exactly the same sort of context. Yeah. And that's some of the most outrageous things about it. But there are so many people out there, if I went on a mission and cherry-picked the information they went out of, of huge conversations and just stitched it together like that, great people with great stories, with fantastic information who are really doing an outstanding job in both communities or whatever they want to call themselves. You could literally poison the water with what they said in small minuscule amounts. And I know people want to go looking for this now because we've just created a lot of unfortunate interest around it. But the thing is, mate, it does doesn't do good for our community. Really, it doesn't do good for no, our community. No, and there might be people out there and said, well, Pat, Glenn, you're talking about this now. How is that good for the community? It's not. And I acknowledge that. Like mm. I'm saying, I acknowledge that this sort of conversations are not good for the community. Really, I don't want to be in a position to have to talk about this sort of nonsense because it really, the bar that everybody is trying to push up, the bar that everybody is trying to get under, here's the frustration that I ultimately have. We have said this on so many show episodes and literally within the community, there are other people who are fighting actively against this. When we're actively all fighting an organisation that want to drive us down and want to stop us not only from doing the things we like or using the tools that we use or whatever, but taking all our pets away from us. Mm. I mean, it's just outrageous that there is this still this scuffle that sort of goes on. It's like hoods who just want to control a street corner and they don't see that the overwhelming government want to take all the street corners away from everybody. Yeah. You know, and that that's the thing that fucking drives me crazy. So in the same video, like I recognize some of the voices. Mm. There's Larry Crone and there's Robert Cabral and Tom Davis and Gelman's in there as well. And so like some of those people I have a, a huge amount of respect for and look at their training and I'm like, holy shit, that's great. And others I don't really appreciate their training very much. But I think the thing in it as well, when you're dealing with any sort of dog trainers and when you're going to go off at them and want them banned or whatever, right? Like you're going to call them out in that kind of way. I feel like what you really got to do is look at the totality of their experience and decide, are they actually being abusive or they're doing things within the law? All right. There might be instances when people see online shitty dog training and it's just shitty dog training. They're just not good at it, what they're doing. Mm. That's just one thing. But I think that what I like to do is look at people's contribution in its being the sum of all of its parts. In its entirety. Yeah, in its mm. entirety. And looking at it and going, you know, does this person provide a net positive or a net negative position or, or contribution to the industry? And I don't think that anyone there in that cohort is providing a really like totally they're a problem that has to go away and that all dogs are better off not having met them. So you, like you look at those, the two women from Shallow Creek, kennel or whatever it was that uh been arrested for that video that came out with them like that's straight abuse that was hidden camera that, that is abuse that's straight abuse yeah, that right? is abuse there's no defending that yeah so like everyone, there's nobody in our community everyone that i know is outraged by watching yeah. that video there's not one person who wants to well there might be but 
there's nobody that I know of that wants to defend that stance. Yeah, so, and rightfully so. Exactly. Like, so we can all look at that and yep. go, that is abuse. That's, yep. But it's not like you can't look at it and go, oh, that's a training technique that I don't like, yep. right? It's like, no, that's abuse. I think that as an industry or as a group of people within it, we need to sort of realign on like what really constitutes that, right? Abuse. Like, and yeah, yeah. Yep. and really have a think about – you know, do, is this just something I don't like? Is this just something that I'm not comfortable with and therefore I don't have to expose myself or my dog or anyone around me to that and that's totally fine, go ahead? Or is this like an actual problem? Are these people actually abusing dogs? That line is so fluid across the industry. So many people mm. draw that line in so many different places. And I just think as well, like – I am across a pretty large gamut of the industry. Like when I try and explain to people sort of like, what are the dogs you deal in? I'm like, oh man, that's broad. It's same for you, right? Like mm. I deal in special forces, military working dogs, all the way down to being in people's homes, helping them with their fluffy that barks at the door. Yeah, right? we cover all aspects. from. Yeah, but there's a lot that I don't, right? Mm. Like I don't deal in uh, herding dogs really. I don't teach herding. And, Flyball, and, agility. Yeah, like there's yeah. so many sports. And when I say I'm really into dog sports, it's like, very, some very specific ones, mm. not across the whole thing. So it's a huge, the, the industry is enormous. Like it's a Dunning-Kruger type thing. Like I'm quite aware of how enormous the industry is and the types of dogs that are, that you know, the types of dogs that exist and the roles that they're required to perform. I'm aware of most of those. I don't know much about many of them, right? Like if you ask, if you give me a, a little Kelpie and say, we need this dog to herd sheep, I have no idea. I don't know where to start. That's not my area. I don't know anything about it. Mm. I would never get involved in people that do. I'm super interested in it. I'd love to like learn it and see it and then try and, you know, break it apart and put it back together in a way that makes sense to me and maybe make some modifications. And I think that's how innovation happens is when you get fresh eyes like on a new thing and you sort of tweak what's already uh, fresh eyes on an old thing and you tweak what's already sort of within there. Yep. That's all cool. But I think that when you get people who are like, the things that I say about compliance in dogs and whether it means that you should starve a dog to make it hungry beforehand, which I was saying I don't do, mm. versus if I ask for a dog to do something that he knows very well how to do and then I don't reinforce afterwards because he chose not to do it, to say that that is a problem to say indicates to me that you don't really know the spectrum of dog training very well. And I think, as I say, that the people that are making these that kind of stuff, it's fine, do whatever you want but you're in a very small cross slice of what is dog training. You have a mildly reactive dog of your own. That's all you have. And what I'm doing is like I train dogs across a very large spectrum of the industry, dogs like yours that are mildly reactive in people's homes, all the way up to where if the dog doesn't perform its, its, its role correctly, it could kill someone or get someone. It could itself kill someone or get someone killed. Mm. And so – like the way that I'll train and the type of training that I will need to use will be different to what you need to use. And to say that what I do is wrong or right or whatever, without knowing, it's really just indicates that you're, you're only aware of a very small fraction of what dog training is. And there is so much more out there. Nicely said. And let me just say, mate, that I've had over the years, a very big cleansing of people in my life and around my social structures who are people that get hung on words and literally can't wait to throw it back in your face. There's a lot of internal sufferance that you have to endure when you have a friendship or a relationship with people like that, whether it's personal or professional or family or anything like that. Like the amount of people, and maybe I've done it myself sometimes, I'm not excluding myself. I've painted that picture before. I've done things that I've regretted being disappointed in myself. So I'm not saying that I haven't done these things. And I've also highlighted before that I've taken myself out of other people's lives because I've realized I'm the problem for them. But some of these people just don't identify with it. They don't understand it. And it's very suffocating to be in any form of relationship where you're constantly walking on eggshells around people. And as I said before, I use the word woke. And the woke society tend to be very much like that. They tend to be very easily triggered and almost waiting to ambush you on anything that you're doing or saying that doesn't align with their thinking. And their thinking has become so bear-trapped that the minute you step in it, 
it's almost like that's the excitement of their day. Mm. You know, like that gives them a purpose to get out of bed in the morning, yeah. to fuck somebody up, to try and bring them down, to try and cause disruption in their life and so forth. I mean, how disappointing that that is now become your trade. That's where your focus is. That's where your energy is. I think you really have to have a look at your alignment and say to yourself, is that really what I wanted to become? Is that really what I envisage my career to be? Because you've made a career. Some of these people, that's their career now in being a professional asshole. Yeah. To wrap it up, I think I just want to make it really, really clear. Like I don't mind, like people can say, you can say bad things about me. It's not that I'm upset that that was made, like, and that I'm involved in it. Like, it, that doesn't worry me even in the slightest. No, people are going to do that, regardless. Exactly, of what and they're know. welcome to. Like, yeah. I, I get on here and I talk. We talk for an hour a week about whatever we feel like. Yeah. People can talk about whatever they feel like, wherever they want to talk about it. But I just think that it's indicative of a bigger problem, and I think that that is sort of like it's indicative of the fact that we don't have a lot of cohesion and that there's the majority of the problems of our industry are caused by people who are on the peripheries of our industry and don't actually know like what they're upset about. They don't really, they know that this is something that ticks the box of me being upset. This triggers me for whatever reason, you know, I'm uh, like, and I'm going to go off about it, which is fine. It's totally a right to do it. And your power to you. I assure you when if you're a critic of me, I assure you, I am a bigger critic of myself. I promise you. Nobody is more worried about the things that come out of my mouth than me. I fucking promise you that nobody spends more time thinking about how things I could be misconstrued than me. I promise you, you can't fucking, you can't attempt to upset me more than I can upset myself. Indeed. Right? I know the internal struggle that goes on there. <laughs> so go for it, right? And yeah. you can't cause and more self-doubt in me than I cause in my own self, in my own training every day when I fucking do stuff. So go ahead, fill your boots. It doesn't worry me at all. But that's what I'm, I'm more interested in is that it's like, ah, I don't care that you made that about me, but it shows me you don't really understand dog training. Mm -hmm. And now you're trying to tell people what is and what is not good when you don't even understand what it is, let alone be in a position to decide whether it's a good or a bad thing. As I said before, there have been multitudes, millions, probably billions over history of men and women, people in general that have been brutalized both psychologically and physically, like executed, tortured, all sorts of things while there were being people in the crowd cheering on. Mm. And that's what you highlighted before. You are one of those people who sat in the crowd and, and these could be innocent people who have never done anything wrong in their life and have, in fact, you know, just because one tyrant wanted to monopolize something for themselves, they whipped everybody into a frenzy. Not only are they an evil person, but you by association are also guilty of standing in that crowd and throwing stones at the person who had to endure that when they did nothing at all but tried to improve the standing of the world in general. Mm. And shame on you. Mm. Shame on you, my friends. Being in the group, that's a big part of it, right? Well, like, mate, this that, you whip it up. You, you're the ones that justify them. You're the ones that give them the power to say, look at all the support yeah. I've generated from these poor, misinformed, hate-filled people. Yeah. You know? But <laughs> yeah. I tell you, folks, if you get involved in this, and I have been, I've been involved in a lynch mob before, and people have said, Better people than me at the time have pointed out to me, and even you have, Pat. You've pulled me up on things before where you've told me to look more perspectively. Perspective is huge. We talk about this in our work culture a lot. Perspective is huge. You've told me to look within, and other people have told me to look within, and because of that sage advice, I have looked more broadly, and I thought, holy shit, there's a whole gamut of information out there that I really didn't take the time to gather. I just got angry and I felt something and I acted impulsively. Mm. This is why so many dogs go to the death as well when they act through impulse. Mm. Impulsive behaviour is just catastrophic. I feel like we're not even going to get to the topic that we (laughs) (laughs) because I was thinking about something just last night actually. I was caught in a deep thought trap about one of the things I kind of miss about being in the army. Mm. Because it's actually... Were you in your sauna at the time? Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. I was, I was doing deep your little, meditation. Your thought bubble. Yeah, because it's actually... I got out of the army in August. It's like right around the time when I discharged, right? So like it's it's it's, it's always a, it's, kind it's, of on my mind. Yeah. But one of the things I do miss, especially now talking as much as I do to people, like through the podcast, like indirectly, people just listening, but also dealing with people in real life. Mm. One of the things, and and I'm always very careful of my words. I put a lot of work into that. Like I, I practice that a lot. I 
I, I really try to use the correct word with the correct meaning to convey what I want in the most efficient way that I can. I know that's like ironic since we waffle so much. Yeah, but you are an articulate wordsmith. I, I, I try to be. Mm. And one of the things that I miss the most about the army is not having to do that. In the army, everybody's working, at my unit anyway, right? And, and like I was never in the broader army. I was just in the one unit for the whole time I was in. And I spent two years at the training center of that unit, right? Mm. So like I really was a commando and not much else. Yep. But everybody is of a very similar personality type because they're selected. So there's some talk. It's pretty interesting when you go back to sort of, I think the guy's name was David Sterling who started the British SAS. There's a particular personality type that goes into special forces it's maybe not even the best personality type for special forces. It's just that when he was building it, it was what he was like and he chose people that were like him. Mm. And that's basically been continuing through special forces units all throughout the world because they're all raised by others. So like I was at two commando regiment, which was raised by the SAS, right? So they got tasked with, hey, train these guys to make another unit to perform a different but similar function of your own. So um, <laughs> you, I don't know whether it's the right attitude, but it's the one that sort of all of them tend to have. And it probably is the right attitude. But the thing that I enjoy the most was never having to beat around the bush with anybody. And you know the compliment sandwich that you kind of have to give people in the workplace? Yes. And you very often have to give with people in in the workplace here. But as dog trainers, you know, you got to sort of say to people like, hey, that was good. These are the things you could change, but this was also good, right? Yeah. So that people sort of feel like two thirds of what you said was nice to me and one third. And I do that all the fucking time. But when I was in, you don't do any of that shit. And good was considered the neutral position. So like if you heard nothing, you assumed it was good. And any feedback that you got, if you got positive feedback, it meant you were fucking extraordinary. Yep. If somebody said you did something well, my God, you fucking did it well, right? Like it was off the charts, and if you did anything below average, people would just tell you. And there was never, in my experience anyway, and certainly at the lower ranks, this is the case. Like I think as you go into higher ranks, maybe there's a bit of politics involved and because people are tussling for positions and that kind of stuff. But when you're a digger in a team and you know, from say like private soldier to corporal within the Australian Army, it's different ranks, different armies, right? But sort of private soldier to corporal, maybe even sergeant, when you get negative feedback, it is 100% job focused. And the only reason that person is giving you negative feedback is because they want you to be better at your job so that your job can achieve the mission more successfully and you are both on the same mission. Mm. So when people give you negative feedback, like again, being in an SF unit, it's not like you're imagining an army movie of being yelled at. That's just not how it goes in those units. It's just mm. not how things work. People just talk to each other. Very often people, you know, don't even necessarily know each other's rank. You Wait, don't wear a lot of uniform. You mean full metal jacket, that whole scene doesn't happen? Well, no, but that very much happens. Oh, I was going to say, in, thank God. No, no, that <laughs> very much happens in establishments like that. Right. That's very true. Yep. But anyway, that's the thing I miss the most is when you could just say to people, hey, dude, you got to do this. And they go, oh, got it. <laughs> like, and there's no like, what did he mean by that? Or, or like, why is he saying this to me and not to him? And all those kinds of shit. He's picking on me. It's like, no, th that doesn't happen within this space. Everybody can just give each other feedback. I don't have to give the compliment sandwich. You can tell me if I'm doing a bad job. I, I can tell you whether you're doing a bad job because we're doing the same job. And we both know because we were selected for it that the the mission that we're working towards, whatever that is, whether that's just a training day or a real gig, whatever, that's all that actually matters to both of us. Mm -hmm. And so I can give you feedback because my intent is the same as your intent. And maybe I see or know something that you don't see or know. Yeah. And that is to me the thing that I miss the most about being in the army is being able to talk to people like that, where there's no risk of what you say being misconstrued. Because you're on a wavelength. Because, yeah, the people mm. just know, like, you have no intent to hurt me with your words. Yeah. And people who can't be hurt by their words. And now these are motherfuckers. Like, if it goes to a fight, it's a fight. Yeah. And it happens. There's a hilarious <laughs> – on one of the trips, there was, like, one of the nights where you're allowed two beers per man and then someone breaks into the beer connex and everybody goes wild. <laughs> two of the guys duked it out and it yep. was like, Hey, and it, but it was as simple as that. They work together all the time, like very good working relationship. And one of them looks at the other and goes, dude, you piss me off sometimes so bad. Do you want to fight? And he's like, fuck yes. I thought we'd never get the opportunity. And one of them beat the shit out of the other one. And it was like, Oh, well, now we know. It just cleared the air. Like that's, and they, they work together fantastically up to that point yep. and fantastically after that point. But it was just like, you have annoyed me at times and I would like to fight you over that. And he's like, yes, wonderful. Let's do that.
Oh, man, that made me just think of the Mike Tyson. There's a couple of points I want to make on this, but it made me think of the Mike Tyson quote that everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. I mm-hmm. use that quite a lot, especially in aggression, because mm-hmm. it's really the lead up with people with aggressive dogs. They just don't know it until it suddenly hits them in the ass. Yeah. On the Disney Channel, there is a series now called Mike, and it highlights the story of Mike Tyson. Yeah, right. Man, I bald like a baby. I absolutely bald with his relationship with Customato, mm-hmm. his his trainer. Fuck that was sad. And and what that poor guy now I know that he's caused himself some mischief and he's tried to make amends for it more recently and he talks about that very, very openly. But it's sad what he endured as a little kid. Yeah. You know, like if it's true to form and I've heard him talk about it in interviews before, but what he endured, just watch it. If you've got the opportunity to watch it and see what he endured and why he became Iron Mike and how he was shaped and forged. It's very relatable to the sufferance that dogs go through and why they become who they become. Oh, and yeah. It, it, mate, it was fucking heartbreaking. Like, yeah. it's, seriously, I'm, I'm trying not to well up with emotions now talking yeah, about yeah. it. It's sad. It's really horrific what people and dogs endure in those moments. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Mike Tyson is a fascinating- Very. He's, um, a, he's a great case study. Yeah. Yeah. And the parallels to- like having always being wound up and having no relaxation time and never even having anyone say that they love you unconditionally. That's what fucked him up the most. And I think you see that quite a lot. Like when we're dealing with working dogs, it's one of the things where you see people like the dog comes out of the kennel, it does his work, it goes back away. Yeah. And that's essentially what Casamato did to him, right? It was- There is sensitive moments between the two of them, but he encouraged him to be that monster. Yeah. And we made a podcast around the Jordan Peterson quote, be a monster- but also learn to control that monster. I think Customato encouraged him to be a monster, but let it out of its cage. Like yeah. totally let go and be the villain. Yeah. Well, he but, told him that like the, his opponents were trying to take his status from him. Yeah. Like that's how he had to enter the ring every time thinking this isn't a boxing match. This is a fight. If you, you are your status and then if your opponent is trying to take your status from you, then it's a fight to the death. Like that's how he thought of every fight. Well, the thing with Cus, when you see the relationship with him, and it's it's a snippet of a whole lifestyle. Yeah, so yeah. You, you're only seeing, and this could be exaggerated, but he appears to be the best thing that happened to him and also the worst thing that happened to him. Yeah. You know, like it's a, it's a conflicting situation when you're actually watching it. It's also terribly sad because there was genuine love for each other. Yeah, you know, yeah. like- Cuss loved him like a son and and Mike loved him like he was his father. And he talks about how absolutely terrified he was to let Cuss down. Yeah. You know, like to to lose and to not be and, and to not have love. To lose his love. To lose his love. He loved yeah. him conditionally. You look at the relationship he had with his mother, and again, I don't know if it's true to form, but his mother always looked down on him and he felt that she always thought he uses the phrase a lot, calling people a piece of shit. But that's what he thought his mother always thought of him was he was just a fat little kid with a lisp and just a piece of shit and a disappointment in his Jesus, eyes. Imagine oh mate, like it that. is I unashamedly say I had fucking tears streaming out of my eyes yeah, in this, I can't the second watch that. one. It was traumatic. It was good, you know, like they managed to show a lot of the good highlights of it. But the actor who's portraying Mike, he is doing an exceptional job of it. Like he almost he he looks like him in so many ways. Really? Oh yeah. There's sides of it where you, you think, oh, it's not quite like him, but then you, you kind of lose yourself into the story. And it's only two episodes in, mate. Like I am absolutely enthralled to watch the rest of it because, like you said, it's a massive case study because you and I have lost sleep on the amount of dogs who suffer that and endure that same sort of life. Yeah. We always try and get the show to circle back to it being like dogs. And I'm not saying Mike Tyson's a dog. But, you know, like I've seen interviews with him and I remember one more recently he was doing a podcast with William Shatner. Captain Kirk, the original, Mm -hmm. he was talking about how he's an alter ego, how he doesn't like Iron Mike because Mike Tyson's an unfeeling, unforgiving brute. And, you know, like he tries to suppress him. And, geez, the look on William Shatner's face, like he just, he goes, really? You have to endure that. And Mike Tyson cries so openly about what he had to express and who Mm -hmm. he was and the monster that he became and stuff like that. You just watch the deep regret and the hurt that goes through. Fuck, that's intense. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting when you look at the very high-end working dogs with real jobs, I mean, like Mm -hmm. not sport dogs, the SWAT dogs and that kind of stuff that don't do any tracking. Yeah. And Bart was very clear with me sort of early days. He was like how important the scent work is to dogs. He's like, you know, even if a dog – 
is never going to search for anything. You have to get it out of the crate and it has to use its nose. And oh, of I think course. that's the function of the box. And that's why, I, like, I've seen so much success in, for the most part, when we talk about the box, it, it, it sort of goes into the category of, and we've intentionally not talked about it much lately, mm. but it goes into the category of dealing with fearful reactive dogs and strengthening nerves and all that kind of stuff. And, and for sure it works in that. Yeah. I think that it, it it's not a magic bullet. It's a, part of a bigger program that's yeah, super important. Yeah, it's part important, of a journey, right? Yeah. Mm. But it's definitely something that helps. But I encourage everyone to do something similar to that box, an article indication, something like that with every dog, no matter what, because it's a it's a puts the dog into that meditative state. And it's that slow nasal breathing that I think is super important. Whether they're actually searching for anything doesn't really matter, mm. but it's a focus with nasal breathing that I think becomes really important to the overall stability of the dog. And then I think there's lots of ways you could approach why it's worthwhile is like, first of all, in the care of the dog, like it's just going to make a more complete dog. It's going to make a much less dangerous dog as well. Like a dog that sort of is more of aware of itself, who is meant to be bitten and who's not that kind of thing. Yeah. But also just for an administrator, who's going to be allocating training time and resources, it's worth allocating to for the longevity of the work career of the dog. Absolutely. Right. Like it's, you're going to get a lot more work life out of the dog when it's more stable like that and tends not to cook off because you sometimes see that with the very high end SWAT team type dogs that are just siege dogs, right? They're off tap. They really only come out for the siege and especially depending on where they are, in the world that might be every day you know they come out do something extreme and they think that's their only opportunity for re- yeah. reinforcement so they embrace that yeah beastality yeah and so they yeah. they express themselves a hundred percent they give everything they can they get the bite they apprehend the person they do whatever and then that's how they're satiated and then they're put away yeah and i think that the idea of bringing a dog out and being like hey you are out here to do something very calm and i don't want an extreme drive expression from you i want you to focus on just one thing Mm. and focus very intently on that and just slow yourself down and stay involved in this one thing at the cost of observing what else is going on stay focused on one thing it's incredibly important for a dog. So I think that like I observe that in the people who I've coached to do it with the very high end SWAT team siege type dogs, it increases the longevity of the dog, but also makes the dog outside of the work time much more manageable, mm. right? Like makes the dog a more complete version of itself. And I think that's what's missing from a lot of like not just working dog programs, but I think a lot of the sort of high intensity athlete type stuff is if it's all go with no woe, that's not a balanced life, right? And those scales, you put too much weight on one side, it has to topple eventually. And that's where you get people having giant breakdowns and doing ridiculous shit. Mm. And like, I know it's not fair to compare Mike Tyson to a dog, but like psychologically, they see the same things happen. This is where a lot of those high end working dogs become handler aggressive and that kind of stuff because they're so comfortable in aggression because they only come out of their box to go into aggression that it becomes unclear to them that any other emotional state is even worth well, nothing else being is rewarded in. yeah that's the only element in their whole yeah. spectrum that that's but given I think, any credence i think when we think of it in terms of like that's the only thing that's been rewarded mm. it, that is correct but i think of it in terms of like that's the only place they are. They don't know how to be anywhere else. Yeah, they're, right? they're sharpened to a point. Yeah. Like only exist in that spectrum and don't show anything else. Yeah. So that's why you rarely see the same thing in a dog that also tracks. Yeah. So like when a dog, you know, you see like GP type dog that, or, or, you know, within lots of different roles and functions, the dog can do detection to do whatever. Those dogs tend to be a lot more balanced and more complete than the dogs that are just used like in a, a straight aggression type role. Well, if you look at the brain structure of a dog, which I encourage people to get online and have a look at what it looks like, do a comparison between the human brain and a canine brain, and quickly you'll see that the olfactory lobe is completely different to what the comparison is to a human brain. Mm. When you're talking about taking away something which is abundantly necessary in the life of a canine, like we just don't need to use our olfaction. We use it and we have... You know, I was listening to another interesting interview with Cameron Ford a while ago where he was talking about dogs are often celebrated as having an amazing olfactory system which is far superior to human beings. And that's true to large degrees. But I remember an older mentor than Cameron in Scent talking about this many, many years ago where they were saying there are things that human beings are more equipped to smell over dogs mm. and see and, and think about, et cetera, et cetera. So we all have our 
spectrums of where we have an advantage. But if you look at the brain structure, especially the olfactory lobe, it is enormous compared to that of a human beings. Mm. And we can talk about percentages, but that really doesn't matter. What matters is it's significantly larger and for good reason as well. We know how significant dogs are in detection work. We know from studies that with current science, we currently know that they can detect a molecular level. So we know that they're significant in odour. So when you take away something or when you tell a dog not to express something which it was born to do and literally born to do, we're not just talking about the genetics at the time. We're talking about a whole entire evolution of a species. Like they are designed to sniff and they need to do that. Mm. I remember in the early days of ADT when we developed the social walk and people can say I did it first, but we didn't know any other way other than just a rigorous healing routine where fucking dogs hated doing healing because it was so pressure focused, you know, mm-hmm. like there was no compassion and healing back in those days. And it derived from the old ANKC way of doing things. There was Boyd, myself, Claude Batoni, Jim Mulholland, Sean Carroll, just to name a few people who were brilliant dog trainers back then, Kelly Gulliver, Kylie Bright. Uh, we were sitting around a table and we just said, this is not the way to do it anymore. This is the, you know, like this is detracting from good work with our dogs. And we identified the necessity of dogs being able to have a sniff on the walk. Mm. Instead of asking dogs to constantly be in attention and healing in a working capacity, what we had to give dogs was the permission to be free, Mm. you know, like on walks with a clear distinction of the message that we're trying to deliver, which was don't pull on the lead. That was Mm -hmm. the only law on social walking. It meant you can go anywhere you want, And we can travel and enjoy this walk together. You just can't pull me. Mm. And that's what the dog had to identify with on the walk. Mate, it changed the relationship between dogs and owners overnight. Yeah, Healing became better because we identified that at the time it was viewed as aversive to the dog. Like Mm. the word heal wasn't said with any excitement or any passion. There was no love in that word. So what we what we collectively created overnight was a successful way to teach dogs. Social walking is an informal exercise. It now gives you the ability to enjoy a walk, to go down the street, just don't pull. Mm. If you pull, that's what's going to cause grief for you. Dogs quickly identified, this is the way. This is my new life. And I can enjoy it and I can embrace it. Because why be in a formal situation when formality is not required? Mm. So what we had to do was teach people to identify, and this is going off the whole conversation you had with the importance of being able to have a sniff around and the box work and so forth. But even way back then, like you could see like an immediate transformation in how the dogs embrace life and subsequently embraced new skill building on top of that. Mm. So when we went from like a teaching methodology of teaching for abstinence, which is not pulling on the lead versus teaching actions of learning new skills on top of that, It was transformative, completely transformative. These sort of things are in the perspective of becoming a dog trainer or even somebody who's involved in behavior. These are things that you really need to take notice of Mm. and and not embracing that sort of thing. You have to ask yourself, why am I not? Why have I got it to the point where I'm fixated on this way only? Interesting thing is even talking to agencies about even now starting to change from direct reinforcement to indirect reinforcement on Mm. detection work and so forth. That's so exciting. Mm. You know, like what I mean by that is not having a dog sitting in front of a target like explosives and then throwing a towel at it or near it or something like that. Mm -hmm. But now using the cue, clicking or saying yes and having the dog return and get rewarded away from the impending danger or the odor or whatever it is. Seeing that transformation happen in my lifetime is fucking exciting. Yeah. You know, I'm loving it. I'm loving seeing people really embrace alternative training methods, but not only seeing it's possible, but also seeing the net positives behind it as well. Like Mm. gaining from those whole paradigm shifts from one thought to another, simply because that was the way it was. And that was the way you have to do it because somebody said that's the way, but now people are looking at it retrospectively and thinking, I have to embrace the balance view now, Mm. you know, like what if there is another way of doing this? Holy shit, there is. And the dog's responding accordingly to it. Not only am I getting as good results, but sometimes much better. Mm. Scent as a trigger to dogs is super interesting when you think about it, It right? Like I think that especially dealing in sort of reactive dogs and all kinds of things, I think scent gets really overlooked. Yep. And we know, like, as you say, when we're doing it on purpose, we look and we go, oh, 
this is amazing. The dog can smell this stuff. You know, I, one of the most impressive dogs I've ever seen was an arson detection dog that I saw in Texas. That yep. was incredible. I've never seen a dog hunt as calmly and as clearly. At one point, the dog, without boring with all the details, at one point it actually ran into a wall yep. because the way the scent was falling. It was it pulling was, in one area. Yeah, and mm. it was on a staircase and the scent, it, the scent was on the second story and yep. the dog went up and at the top, it was like a, it was in a school, right? So it was like, you know, like the classic American sort of elementary school, like the Simpsons style. Yep. yep. It was exactly like that. So there's a staircase right at the center opening and the staircase was like a two landing one that went around to the right and then it was an open hallway above. Yep. And the scent was in the first room on the, like to the left as you look at the building, but the staircase went around to the right. And the dog took a couple of steps in, was clearly like on odor pretty much straight away and was like, yeah, I've got a sense of where it's coming from and was walking up the stairs with its nose in the air and the scent was clearly coming down from the left side, but the stairway went around to the right and the dog actually walked into the wall, like hit the wall and then looked around, sort of came to its senses and was like, all right, okay, like this is how I negotiate the obstacle of getting closer to the the scent. But it was like, it was all that mattered to it. There Mm. was no... So like, that's super interesting to me when you say, and like, as a person there, you know, observing that as a arson detection dog, I was like, holy shit, that's amazing. Right. Like that is exceptional scent work. And that dog has got a great nose, but probably no better than tens of thousands of other dogs that are capable of the same level of interest in an odor. Well, right. look, at, look at dogs who, when there's rabbits been on the field overnight, you look at it and go, what are you doing, you silly old dog? Yeah. And the dog is- Counting the rabbits that were there. It's counting the rabbits that are yeah. there. There's a small clip that I played to the NDTF students who are doing the scent elective course, and it's a cartoon just on canine olfaction, and it's very elementary. Mm-hmm. But it talks about studies in dog training where it's so broad, the perspective of odour and what dogs can understand about it, of age of odour, you know, like health relativeness of the subject that they're looking for. I mean, there are so many, what we look at and we can say, oh, you look sick, dogs smell it, you know, mm. like they understand all that or they can understand the time frame of when this occurred because of the age of the odour. And all these things are just I mean, they're mind-boggling things. Yeah. Here's what blew my mind when I think about it, right? That dog clearly was using its nose as its primary sense. Yep. It was like, that's the one that's most important to me. And it took the jarring of hitting a wall before it was like, oh, okay, I need to engage my other senses to negotiate how to get to the target odor that I want, right? And as I say, in detection, we look at that, we go, oh, that's great. Like, But but that dog's probably no more capable than tens of thousands of other dogs. Mm it's been refined to understand what that odor is and how important it is right then there. And that's an appetitive odor. Yeah. So one of the things that I think we overlook massively in when you see dogs that have problems going on and there's like odd behaviors that are being triggered by something we don't understand is that it's very possible, often sometimes likely that that is an odor Odor related. It's odor related. And we, we come like, it's so rare that you see anybody sort of investigate that because for the most part, we are totally unaware of it. So it's not even that people would dismiss it. It's that they're unaware that it's even a contributing factor to what could be happening. Mm. And what blew my mind about this was it was actually a clubhouse conversation. Joe Rosie was talking about someone asked about dogs dreaming. Basically what she was saying is that there's some evidence that probably suggests that they dream in scent, because if that's the most, prominent part of their brain, we tend to dream in pictures because our important senses being sight and sound Mm. are what we tend to initiate while we're dreaming, Mm. right? But the olfactory part of the brain being so important to the dog and that being really how they're taking in the world probably much more than their eyesight, they're generating more information from their noses than they are from their eyes. It totally makes sense that when they dream, they're dreaming in sense rather than in pictures. It's very likely. This is what blew my mind, mate, because Remy has nightmares. Mm. Remy has full-blown night terrors. Not often, but every now and again, I've seen him have full-blown panicky nightmares. Mm. And he expresses behaviors that I've never fucking seen from him in real life. And you've seen the amount of pressure. You've done it. Like, that dog can take a lot of pressure. He's a strong dog. Yeah, he is. Yep. And I've never once seen him, like, you know, through careful training, he's never gone into avoidance. We've never put him, there's been times where he's not understood that he should bite, but there's never been a point where he's like, no, fuck this. I'm out of here. I choose confusion I and choose, avoidance is, yeah. is different, but yeah. Yeah. 
So there's times when like I've done too many guards and he doesn't engage on it. You know, there's, there's reasons why he is not bitten when I've told him to in the past, but mm. they're all training related, right? Yep. Never once has that dog ever been like, no, I'm too scared. That's not going down. I've never seen him scared of shit in his life, except sometimes when he's asleep and he's freaking the fuck out, mm. like whimpering and displaying behaviors that I've never, ever seen from him when he's awake. And it made me think like, can he imagine smells? And is, are there smells? Because if he, for him to display a behavior while he's asleep that I've never seen him display while he's awake means that he has to be imagining something that could bring that on mm. because he has not encountered it. And, you know, I met that dog when he's five days old. He's been with me just about his whole life. When he's not with me, it's because he's in these kennels here. Nothing's happening to him here that he's not happening with me. So, like, what is it that he's imagining that, can bring on a behavior that has never happened to him in real life while he's asleep. Mm. And so I've often wondered that, like, and I kind of laugh it off. Like it's no big deal, right? Like it's not like he's having night terrors every night. And I often sort of guard him a little bit, like, uh, cause I get quite concerned about if it's happening on the couch, it happened one time, I think on the couch, like during the day and everyone's kind of looking and I was like, Hey, can you, there were a couple of people over. I was like, Hey, you got to go. Because if he wakes up mid this, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. So like just, chill out. And it's never been an issue. He usually wakes up and it was like, you can see him like, Oh, what the fuck? How did I get back here? But then when she said they probably dream in sense, I was like, Oh my God, that adds another layer to like, what the fuck is he imagining that makes him feel that way? And that made me think, I was like, if he's imagining a scent that can make him be crippled with fear while he's asleep, then there are dogs that can experience a scent that cripples them with fear while they are awake. Mm. Interesting concept. Oh, dude, it blew my mind when I was thinking about it. And that's why I think we are taking in, especially when you have problem dogs and there's problem behaviors and you see like, you know, what's going to happen here. You're taking in like what you can assess as to like, why is the dog performing this way? But you have a different set of senses. We've got the same set of senses, but in a very different combination to what that dog has. So when you're like, this will set off the dog and this will not you really kind of don't know what it is that's necessarily setting off the dog. There's plenty of obvious cases, right? There's plenty of obvious examples, but there's some of those times where you're like, I'm stumped. I can't figure this out. Mm. I reckon most of the time when, cause I've done that plenty of times when you're like, man, I can't figure this dog out. I don't know what's going on. And we usually then say about the dog, we say, well, there's something neurological going on with this dog, right? Like he's not right. I can't find the triggers. I've exposed him to all these certain things and I can't find a reliable trigger that sets this dog off. So therefore we can put him in the basket and say, neurological, but maybe you can't identify the triggers. Like your set of senses don't allow for you to even identify that there is a regular and consistent trigger that's setting off the dog. And, mm. and that dog never gets the opportunity to have that trigger removed or changed or desensitized, counter conditioned, whatever, because not only do you not control it, you don't even perceive it. In a long-winded way, what you're saying is we make a lot of assumptions on what the dog's thinking and oh, feeling. We have to. Mm. That we have we, to. That's the only to. way we can train. But, yeah, but yeah it, it's wild when you think about it like that, right? Yeah. There's a lot of interpretation that happens on your current level of education and understanding. Totally. Which is dangerous sometimes. Totally. Um, and I think back to some of my early days in dog training, and you and I have talked about, you know, like wishing the forgiveness of our early dogs while we were learning Absolutely. our craft. Yeah, I see a lot of that evident in the industry where people are at a certain level and they make a whole bunch of wild assumptions based on their current understanding of it. But then when you have the option of fast forwarding in time and you ask them again, which we've had the ability to do, and certainly I have in my career, if I've said to people, what would you do now? And it's an entirely different answer. Mm. One that really rung evident of that was Pat Nolan's discussion about when he was telling you and I about mm. the bird the that bird. he was training. Those sort of things are important in our evolution to mm. understand that and have to bear witness to it because it's only those times where it's kind of like the world or the universe slapping you in the face and saying, hey, wake up, motherfucker. Mm. Like I've been trying to tell you this for a long time, but you weren't ready until now. I told you before, and it's this is another guitar thing. I had an evolutionary step in in my work with guitars that I was only ready to do it because I was at that stage right there and then. If you'd said the same thing to me back in time, there was no way that it would have made sense to me and it would have frustrated me and probably forced me to quit mm. because it would have been too far beyond my comprehension and understanding of it. I wasn't ready until that point in time, but then I was present to it and I thought, of course, this makes entire sense. Mm. In saying that, there's a lot of people in the career who are very hard on themselves because they're not where they want to be and that fragments them a lot. 
I'm thinking about several people right now while I'm saying this, where I see fragmentation of their capability and where they are because they see other people doing it. They wish to be that good, but they don't understand that level of commitment and what goes into it and how many mistakes and how many trial runs they had to go through. They just, they're not educated enough at that point in time to understand how that all comes together and completes. Mm. I guess the phrase, the journey of a thousand miles starts with a single footstep. And sometimes people are so fixated on the end that they don't realize the importance of the actual journey and in going into that education. Mm. That's very important as well. And I mean, this is, I, I don't know where this has sort of come from, but it's just, it's thoughts that pop into my mind while I'm listening to you talking about this because I view so many things in new people coming into this industry. And desire is great. And again, it forces me to think of another saying that I really repeat a lot is don't let your ambitions get mixed up with your capabilities. Ambition is great. It's terrific to be ambitious. I mean, it keeps you and it drives you and it inspires you to keep going forward. Ambition is wonderful, but blind ambition is to your detriment sometimes. Mm. It will lead you into your path where either it will frustrate you entirely and force you to stop. Sometimes if you're lucky, it will give you a big breakthrough in creativity, but more often than not, it will cause you more heartache and pain than do you any good capabilities is where it's at. And if you don't have the right answers, don't be so ignorant or even egotistical to reach out to people and ask them, here I am in my journey. What mistakes am I making or what can you see that I'm not seeing myself? I think you and I have talked about the importance of second set of eyes so much. Mm. Anyway, I'm rambling a bit now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we never got to our topic. We had that we line up and it was a good one. Yeah. Anyway, we could put it in the tank, save it for next time. Yes. All right, I'm going to do the wrap-up. Yep, well, you're off to – you're about to jump yeah. on a plane. I'm out here because I'm dropping my dog off. So by the time you're hearing this, I'm – You're I'm, inside I'm long the gone. United States. I'm long gone. Yep. Anyway, that's it for another episode of The Counter Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, like, rate, share, subscribe. Do something to get someone else to listen to the show. If it's this episode you're getting to listen to – Whatever the timestamp is of where we actually started talking about dogs, get them to there. As I said, I'm acutely aware of how hard it would be to be a new listener to the oh, yeah. show. There's a lot of history. Yeah. And there's a lot of references that we talk about where we reference back to those things and people are going, what are they talking about? Yeah. Give us some advice on that. If you're a new listener to the show and I say, oh, you know, when Remy does this and people are like, who the fuck is Remy? <laughs> right? that's, you a, say, that's a good point. When Mando does this, you're like, people are like, who the fuck is that? I don't know a Mando. Yep. Anyway. So if you're a new listener, just bear with us. You'll figure it out. Just play the game. Or just binge on all the early yeah. episodes, which people do. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. I really like those, like, because we get emails all the time. We get messages from people, like, asking questions about episode 22, <laughs> yeah. stuff like that. And they're like, hey, I- I can't I, even remember what we said back then. No. And it's so different, but it's cool. I, I just can't imagine the poor people. So this is what actually happened with me when I first started listening to Dog Training Conversations with Jay and Chad, was they probably had- I don't know, at least 80 episodes or something by that time. Oh, oh, actually, I have no idea, but there were a lot. There were a yep. lot of episodes. And it was at a time when I was doing two things. I was doing contract shooting. So I was still, I was driving all over the countryside doing that. But also I was doing like mostly in-home dog training sessions. So I was in the car for hours a day driving around. I was dreaming in their voices. Because <laughs> as soon as I found it, I went back to episode one. Yep. I think I couldn't get episode one. But anyway, I listened to everything. And I got so, like, I was like, I literally was dreaming in their voices. Wow. So I can't imagine how it is for people now trying to get through, what are we at, 250-something episodes or something? Uh, 230. There you go. We should catch up with the boys and find out where they're at these days. Yeah. That'd be yeah. interesting. We occasionally have a little bit of a trickle of information and yeah. Chad and I send each other memes every inappropriate now and again. memes. Yeah. But, yeah, it'd be interesting to see where they are. It's been some time, especially Chad. It's yeah. It's been some time since we've had Chad on the show and had a chat with him where he's up to in his career. Totally. How life has changed over the pandemic for him and everything like that. Same thing with Jay. Mate, this is one of the things why I'm like, I leave for the States tomorrow, or like I'm there by the time I listen to this, but I'm really conflicted about being away from my family at the moment. I, it doesn't feel like a safe time to travel. Yeah. I don't like being away from my family. But I'm terrible at staying – like, I'm not a good texter. I'm not good at replying to people's stuff. Yeah, likewise. I, I'm a terrible friend. Yeah, like, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a terrible long-distance friend. I'm a yeah. great in-person friend. So there's so many people who I've lost touch with yeah. that I'm super excited about being at the – but doing a seminar and meeting new people and old, old friends there – but then also go on the ISCP conference and same deal. Like it's important to me to put a bunch of faces to names that I know, like, so there'll be lots of new people I meet, but 
but there's heaps of people that I used to see every few months, you know, you'd mm. see them at, mm. at, at things, you'd be at events and you hang out and you have those really intense short-term relationships with, and they're really awesome. And then you like, normally you sort of think, yeah, I'll see you next time. And there hasn't been a next time in three years. Yeah. So I'm super excited about getting to reconnect with a lot of the people that I've just lost touch with. And I'm, Indeed. I'm, I'm super excited to do that. Yeah. So yeah. Well, it, by the time um, you're hearing this, I'm probably, this is probably about IACP conference time. So if I'm there, come and talk to me. Yeah. I've got a mild case of FOMO about it. And yeah. it's simply for the people hanging out with some of those awesome people. You know, I've told you before, I miss Josh Moran and Justin Hall and Chad and Jay and George Kittredge. There's a myriad of people. Adrian Forsyth, Misha Harris, I think her name is now. Yeah. It used to be Belitsky, I think, and they've got their little son now and everything yep. like that. Like time moved on. New generations of yep. babies are coming through. And, <laughs> uh, yep. Even you with Axel, you know, you've got a, yep. you, you've had a baby over that pandemic period and everything like that. But there's things that have happened, you know, yep. like there's lots of conversations yet to be had. Tyler, Tyler Muda, I haven't seen Ty- – we're supposed to have Tyler on the show yep. at some stage. You've got to tear that up soon. Uh, there's a myriad of faces and names, and I'm, forgive me if I'm not mentioning you on the show. It's just that there's so many people I'd love to see and, and hang out with. Yeah. Sammy I mean, Jo Menning, she was – I yep. think she's going to be there. Yeah, she, she commented, yep, she's going to be there. She sent me a message saying it's sad you're not coming, but, yeah, it is sad I'm not coming. I'm taking all my camera gear. I'm not taking a full podcast setup because I just don't have the capacity for that. I'll have stuff to do a bunch of interviews and stuff and that'll probably go like I might put some out but a lot of it will go into Patreon. I'm going to try and talk to as many speakers as possible and get maybe, as much stuff as I can. Maybe if you're there and you and I can hook up a time, we can just get a bunch of people to come on with you and yeah. if you're taking a mic over, yeah, let's try and get a, uh, a, yeah. a bit of a quick catch up where we just do a bit of a room whip around. Yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. All right. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is jump into Patreon. A few bucks a month, get your extra episode in there. I go live every month, but I didn't this month. I must apologize for that. I'm very, 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 very sorry. I just have been to be able to go away. I've been ridiculously busy, but I'll make up, I'll make it up for you. I promise, promise, promise. Yep. I recorded that thing that I was talking about last episode. That's all. That'll be out soon. I've got to start editing that. I'll do that on the plane. So jump into Patreon. The other way to support the show is Teespring. Yes. Get yourself some sweet underpants. Yes. Do we actually have underpants? Nope. Okay. I should stop saying that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Get yourself but, a but water bottle. You can always, always imagine that you're, <laughs> you're wearing your um, undergarments with our heads on them. Yeah. TCP mm. underpants. Yep. I have a, a pair of boxes with Dave's head on them. Oh, Dave really? Dave has a pair of boxes with my face <laughs> on them. We got them as Christmas presents from the staff. Oh, God. That's a great idea. It was a tradition. It hasn't happened for a long time, and it was probably since pandemic time, but every year the staff used to get it was either me as Superman and Dave as Batman or vice versa. Oh, yeah, yeah. But they used to always have a top with me saying I love Dave and Dave saying I love Glenn. Yeah. Um, and it was just very funny and it was always heartfelt that, you know, yeah. like we'd unwrap these gifts and it was it was something randy or silly or something like that. But, yeah. yeah They're we, the best gifts. They are. We had such a good laugh. I, I've got a closet full of stuff with Dave's face on it or something like that. <laughs> you and Dave are in the closet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Buy a water bottle. We got yeah. those probably. Yeah. <laughs> and if you want to get in touch with us, the best way to do that is jump in the Facebook discussion group. There's yes. always good conversations in there. That's where we draw most of the inspiration for the show topic idea. So if Indeed. you've got something, absolutely post it in there. We'll see it. We'll talk about it if we can. Yeah. We've been enjoying talking about community topics. Yeah. Even though sure. we had the intention to talk about a community topic on this one. I percent we didn't get to but, it. But it's a great one and we will come back we to it. We will come back it's to it. It's in the tank. Yes, it is. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can shoot us an email. We are info at thecanineparadigm.com. Goodbye. Goodbye.